This is Scott Beck with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. It's thrilled today to be joined by one of the most brilliant technologists and founders and entrepreneurs in the world. We're joined today by the founder and CEO of LeanToss, Mohan Giri Daradas. Mohan's a brilliant, brilliant leader. He's a former senior partner at McKinsey & Company. He also holds an MBA from Stanford University, an MS in computer science from Georgia Tech, and a, and a bachelor's in tech in electrical engineering from ITT Bombay. We're going to talk today about technology, AI, and healthcare sort of operations versus clinical excellence, where health systems should focus, and what, what they can do. Uh, before we get started, Mohan, I'll tell you just a little bit about Lintos, brilliant company. Lintos is a healthcare analytics company headquartered in Silicon Valley. It has offices in Charlotte, Atlanta, and Ottawa. Core of the business is embedding patented optimization algorithms based on lean principles, sophisticated data science, and simulation type methodologies into its flagship IQ suite of products. Uh, Mohan is the founder and CEO. Mohan, before we get started, why don't you take a moment and tell us a bit about your background, how you ended up focusing on healthcare, is there a moment that inspired you into healthcare, and, and how did you become passionate about healthcare and what you do? Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Our journey began not necessarily focused on healthcare. I had, during my time at McKinsey, led a whole bunch of operational engagement, uh, operational excellence engagements at dozens of clients in many different parts of the world. I had that distinct moment of suddenly realizing that everywhere I went, people were using Excel to solve operational problems. Excel is middle school math. And if you use middle school math, you'll get middle school answers. And so operational problems are more complex. They need more sophisticated math. And I had enough conviction in the strength of that idea that I quit my job as a senior partner at McKinsey to launch LeanTest at a salary of zero, no funding, no team, no IP, no product, and no customers. Uh, but I was convinced that there was something there. The original cause was broader than healthcare. The idea was, imagine absorbing massive amounts of data, performing sophisticated analytics on it, generating intelligent recommendations that improve the operational performance, and then delivering those recommendations through an intuitive web-based software product. Hence the name of the company, LeanTest. Lean Transformation delivered on a software-as-a-service platform. So, LeanTOS, T-A-A-S, help me with that, mm-hmm. software as a service. Right. It's transformation as a service. Got it. So okay. Thank you so much. Let me let you. Thank you so much. I was thinking LeanSOS, and so I, I know that the company was LeanTOS and wanted right. to make sure it was ready. Let me let you continue. Over the next four or five years, we perfected this approach and delivery model across a wide range of industries and customers. So, Google is a customer, Flextronics, Clorox, Home Depot, et cetera. And it so happened during that time, one of the problems we solved with this methodology and delivery model was infusion scheduling at Stanford. Initially, we thought it was just another problem, and we solved it that way. And then we suddenly realized that every single infusion center in the country and possibly the world faced that issue. And we had developed a very sophisticated yet very simple and elegant solution to the problem. And so we pivoted the company, focused it entirely on healthcare, transitioned all the other industry solutions away to third-party firms, 
and double down and built a, a healthcare analytics company, raised hundreds of millions of dollars, hired hundreds of people, uh, and that's kind of how we got here. Phenomenal. And I watched the growth, watched the intelligence of your leadership team. And people look at your leadership team as, quite frankly, a model for lots of leadership teams with the brilliance, intelligence, and commercialization skills. Talk about AI and machine learning. Those are so hot in healthcare. What is what? And is this hype? Is it reality? How do you differentiate that? What's really useful? What's not? Help us out there. I think AI and ML is certainly a hot and emerging space. I think it's neither hype nor is it a complete reality as yet. Uh, it's certainly inevitable that increasing amounts of AI and ML will find their way into decisions in a sort of invisible way. When Amazon recommends things to us to buy, we don't think of AI and ML, but that's exactly what's happening. As when Netflix recommends a movie for us to watch. The sheer volume of data and the complexity of interpreting it is just too vast for us to expect that uh, people can do it in their heads. They have to rely on it. So when we think about AI in healthcare, we draw a bright line between clinical AI and operational AI. So when we think about clinical AI, we think about algorithms and software absorbing enormous amounts of clinical data from physician notes, lab results, image scans, et cetera, and then using the algorithmic power of pattern recognition and neural networks and uh, you know, supervised machine learning algorithms to make recommendations that alter the clinical trajectory of a patient's care, perhaps reading their scans and identifying a diagnosis or comparing the symptoms and highlighting a lab result that's anomalous and then sending it to the right doctor to recommend a, a treatment path. So we think of all of that as clinical AI. Operational AI, does not attempt to have any clinical judgment whatsoever. The intent is to absorb vast amounts of operational data, timestamps of when a treatment started and stopped, timestamps of when an imaging machine was idle or busy, timestamps from when a patient got wheeled in or wheeled out or when surgery started and ended, in order to make intelligent operational recommendations, not clinical. And by operational recommendations, I mean things like how an equipment should be scheduled, how a room should be booked, how a staff member should be allocated such that patient flow improves, patient experience improves, and staff satisfaction improves. So we distinguish between those two very sharply. Take a moment and further describing the nuance between clinical and operational AI. Clinical, as you mentioned, really helping with clinical decisions. It seems like there's so much growth now in AI applied to operational issues. Talk a little bit more about the nuance and, and where you see that progressing. So when I think about healthcare in the U.S. over the last, call it, 30 years, clinical excellence has improved at a mind-boggling rate, right? The kinds of procedures, robotic surgery, non-invasive surgeries, et cetera, and imaging, image quality that we can do today in our hospitals is light years ahead of what we could do just 20 or 30 years ago. Over the same time period, operational excellence has barely changed. Uh, the, the processes and the workflows are largely the same. Sure, we've digitized paper records into computer records and we schedule on the computer, but there's no disciplined operational excellence that has happened using intelligent algorithms. 
if you compare it with other complex operational entities, think of UPX and UPS and FedEx and Delta Airlines, etc., they didn't become operationally excellent excellent overnight. They spent 20, 30, 40 years building all of this into place. And that is the dichotomy, which is why having intelligent algorithms focused on operations will lift the entire standard of operational performance. Now, it's, it is a reality that operational excellence has not been the major focus for health systems for the last many, many decades. And there are many reasons for that. One of it is healthcare is a hyper-local business. Patients choose providers who live within an hour drive off them for the most part, unless it's a really special case. So the competitive pressures are very different than it is for a UPS or a FedEx or a Delta or a United Airlines who have to compete for customers across the entire country or even the entire world. Healthcare always focused on patient care and clinical outcomes, and, and rightfully so, clinical outcomes. So they just operating as cost effectively as possible was never the mandate. And it was always a fee-for-service world. We've been talking about value-based care for, for years now, but it's still largely a fee-for-service world. And so they don't place operational efficiency at the same level as patient care, and, and arguably that's the right call. Um, and the third thing why healthcare is structurally disadvantaged from operational, intensive, uh, operational intensity is when you think about other industries, they schedule and build their workflows around the asset. An airline only makes money when the plane is in the air and passengers are in their seats. Every other time, it's not making money. And so they focus on getting the plane up in the air as quickly as they can and keeping it up in the air. Healthcare, the workflows are designed, designed around surgeons. Surgeons work seven to five Monday through Friday. You cannot build an airline if the pilots tell you they work seven to five Monday through Friday. And so not suggesting that you should get surgeons to operate at midnight, but it is just the constraints are very difficult uh, to push for operational excellence. And therefore, if anything, it needs a redoubling of the effort to become really good. It's fascinating. When you talk about UPS, FedEx, I mean, I think about Amazon, that your, your point is they've spent decades performing their logistics of sort of how they move things back and forth to make them truly magnificent in those things. And, and talk about why a hospital CEO, COO, CNO, hospital leadership, CFO, why should they care so much about being so great in this kind of logistics and operational intelligence that the Amazons, right. UPSs, FedEx have made their lives work? Why do they have to be so great in it too? Because I don't think the right way is to think about it as logistics and moving stuff. If you think of it as logistics and moving stuff, it's easy for a healthcare CEO to say, I don't move stuff and I don't need logistics. Step back a bit and talk about what is it that makes them excellent. What they're excellent at is matching a very hard to predict demand signal with the availability of the supply capacity to deliver that demand. Okay. UPS cannot possibly predict that later today I'm going to go buy something and ship it to my daughter. So they cannot predict there's a package coming from my zip code and headed to her zip code later this afternoon. Yet they have to have the van, the truck, the driver, the plane, the hub to make that package be delivered by 8 in the morning tomorrow. How do they do that? They figure out how to model and predict demand zip code by zip code, minute for minute, hour for hour, and then mobilize the elements of supply behind it to go execute it. The same with an airline. They cannot predict that you're going to book a flight, and yet they have to have the capacity because they can't just make up a plane overnight. So healthcare has the same problem. Demand is hard to predict. 
You cannot predict who's going to walk in tomorrow, get a diagnosis, and need six weeks of treatment. So it's hard to predict demand, and it's difficult to mobilize supply. For whatever you try and do in healthcare, you need the right staff with the right skills and the right equipment in the right kind of room with the right patient at the right time. If any one of those are missing, the healthcare service doesn't happen. So the problem is not a logistics and moving stuff around problem. It's a problem of a highly volatile demand signal, a highly constrained, unpredictable supply capacity needing to meet minute for minute, hour for hour, day in and day out. What the pandemic did is it showed that healthcare has not been able to match supply and demand. Because on the demand side, suddenly 10,000 people in a zip code needed medical care. And on the supply side, we ran out. We ran out of PPE first, then ventilators, then ICU beds, then regular beds, and now staff. And so healthcare suddenly had to confront the reality that the old methods of looking at calendars and allocating blocks based on who chairs the block committee and keeping block assignments static for a year at a time, that model of supply-demand matching doesn't do. You need sophisticated, analytically intense AI, machine learning, algorithm, simulation, optimization, et cetera, if you're going to have a hope of making supply and demand match. Mr. Bono, let me ask you a question. With, with staffing shortages being in such short supply, isn't what Lintus does in, in the IQ suite of products more important than ever? Don't people need this more than ever yes. to sort of manage their workforces and how things work? Yes, for sure. Uh, supply, uh, staffing is one of those where in the short run, it's very difficult to move, right? If you're short staff and you need to hire people, well, you can't do that today or tomorrow. You can adjust people's shifts and you can adjust the hours of operation and you can bring in travelers and so on. So, so you are a bit constrained. What our algorithms can help do is enable you to serve the same number of surgeries, perhaps by running fewer ORs, in which case you're relieving the pressure on needing to staff that many uh, circulating nurses and scrub nurses and techs and anesthesia uh, because you're able to get all the surgeries done with a smaller set of rooms. Similarly, in infusion, you need specialized oncology nurses. If you're able to optimize the schedule of the utilization of chairs, maybe you can serve the same number of patients with fewer staff. So we do take staff as one of our constraining, uh, constrained resources that we need to build optimization around. Uh, and we do certainly help uh, our health system partners on any of our products understand how best to leverage the staff they've got, give them a heads up in advance if they're going to be short staffed so that they can plan and prepare for it rather than be surprised by it. Another question, Mohan, you're now working with 120 plus health system customers, large hospitals and health systems. Take a moment if you can and, and just do they have to be large, large systems? Could they be mid, mid-sized and small systems? Is there a particular place where what Lintas does particularly fits in well? And just so people understand the, the, just a, a, a little bit more about Lintas and who it works with, I think that's probably the most important question for any customer or any health system is who, who do they work with? Can you give us a sense of the 120 health systems and, and, and just a little bit about background so people can you know, connect the dots on it? So our products work across a very wide range. So we've got academic medical centers. We probably have 15 out of the top 20 academic medical centers in the country. We have large networks like the Common Spirits, which who have you know dozens and dozens of hospitals across many, many states. We have standalone hospitals. 
Uh, we have community cancer centers and we have uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Care Network, which is the 30 top cancer institutions in the country. And I think we serve 27 of them. So our product works across a very wide range. Now, if it's ultra, ultra tiny, it may not need optimization. So if you're running an infusion center with three chairs or four chairs in a suburban or in a rural area, maybe you don't need the optimization. If you're running a hospital with two operating rooms, maybe you don't need it. But we've been deployed in hospitals with as few as six or seven or eight operating rooms, infusion centers with as few as eight chairs. And at the same time, we've got the, the massive systems as well, Duke Health, Oregon Health, have all, uh, Novant have all deployed our OR product at 130, 140 ORs across their system. So our, our dynamic range is actually quite large. We are also EHR agnostic. Uh, about a half of our implementations are on Epic, about a third of them are on Cerner, uh, and the remaining are on all others. So we tend to be EHR agnostic. We tend to be very scalable from small to large. Uh, and therefore, it's a, it's a really wide range uh, that, that our products can help. Phenomenal. Let me ask you another question. We've, we've just entered the third year of the pandemic. Uh, things seem to be looking up in the United States, but there's looming and daunting signals from throughout the world. So I'm not sure that we're really on the other side of this or not. But where do we go from here? And where is the health system? Do we create greater resiliency? Any thoughts there, Mohan? Well, this is more a public health and a policy set of things. I think within the health systems, the early waves of the pandemic caught them quite by surprise because the protocols weren't clear. They didn't know how to deal with PPE, how to deal with patients coming in and out. But all of that has, seems to have become uh, much more manageable now. If I think about telehealth, in the first two months after the pandemic, suddenly went from 2% of the appointments to 70% of the appointments on telehealth because both patients and caregivers uh, were nervous about face-to-face -face encounters. It's now stabilized at 20 or 25. So I think the ability to handle and manage through the pandemic is a lot better. So I think the health systems are much more resilient. I don't believe you'll see uh, quite the the challenge that we had in, in the middle part of 2020. Now, will there be pockets in certain parts of the country where hospitalization rates or ICU bed utilizations go up? For sure, uh, that will happen. But I, I don't see it crippling uh, the health system to near the same extent as we were facing towards the end of 2020. Thank you very, very much. And, and, and one more question, Mohan, and I know this is less for the health system executive, than, but, but interesting to all of us, you left McKinsey as a senior partner, one of the most coveted jobs and positions in the world. I mean, McKinsey sort of the gold standard of consulting firms. You, you started a firm from scratch not that long ago. You've grown to be highly successful. You know, are there, and not a lot of people can go from consultant to founder, this advisor to founder, of a, of a large technology-driven business. It's a very different business than being the, a partner at McKinsey. Talk for a moment about any lessons you learned that you share with the audience or share with other founders you know, that people find interesting about. How do you found a business like that, make it so successful, you know, and, and, and make that work? Do you have a few thoughts on that? A few thoughts. So one was, throughout my consulting, I was always focused on operations. I was never a pure strategy consultant just offering advice or an organizational consultant offering kind of behavioral leadership growth kinds of things. I was always an operational guy. So what I did manufacturing, I did supply chain, I did service operations. So, so I tended to be more 
you know, practical on getting stuff done, which lines up a little more with, with founding a company than, uh, than not. The second thing I think is I've been incredibly lucky. I've been surrounded by some amazing people. The, you know, my, the chief operating officer who runs the company with me has got such an amazing talent on productizing things, which I just don't have the instincts for. I, I have much more of a consulting background. He's got much more uh, of a product instinct background. So together we did create a one plus one history. Uh, I'm very confident that had he not joined me to this, we wouldn't be uh, where we are today. So, so I think the other part of it, which is often overlooked, is the ability to mobilize and build a team of leaders. We've got a dozen leaders who run all aspects of our business, infusion business, the OR business, the beds business, engineering, data science, et cetera. And we've built an amazing, amazing team of leaders. And so the ability of getting that together and then they build around them, that is truly the magic. I don't think you can build anything of the complexity of lean tasks by one person uh, being able to do anything around it. It's a fascinating perspective. There's this concept that's talked about often, and there's a particular author that really writes about this often, of this combination of this visionary and an integrator, which would be very similar how you talk about sort of, this is what we were doing, but to productize it, to commercialize it, and really needed somebody side by side with me who can really build that out and do that in a different way. And then you talk about two other concepts that resonate so well, and they resonate for health systems as well, for a CEO and a COO, for leadership teams and so forth, but you can't do anything without great teams. There, there truly is no I in business. You can't do it by yourself. And then this last concept, and every health system can relate to this, you need dozens of leaders. You need, you need lots of leaders. I mean, at your size, you might need a couple dozen, but at big systems, you need dozens. You need lots of people. Not everybody has to be a leader, but you need lots of people that, that want to lead, that want to be, and, and you need to, as a leader, like you, the CEO and founder, to embrace that. Do not let ego get in the way. What I really want to do is grow a great, great company and have lots of leaders. And, and that's what you've done. So fascinating. Anything else you'd add to that, Mohan? So one of the key things we've learned is that our job as leaders is to put the health systems first. They do an incredibly difficult job of taking care of patients every day. And so our intent is that our products and our interactions and our delivery models with our customers truly puts them first. And then the second thing we pay a lot of attention to is collaboration. We believe fundamentally in collaboration. We have no room for people who are not collaborative within the leadership team or within the company period. And we just have a, a saying that says, on a winning soccer team, no one tackles their teammates. And so we've got no uh, you know, internal politicking or backbiting or, or uh, you know, backstabbing going on. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't disagree. We have got a culture where we disagree very strongly with each other, but it's a principal disagreement on the facts and on the on the answers. But the spirit of collaboration is very high. So, so I think it's up to the leadership team at the top to set and maintain and model that kind of behavior, which is what has helped us grow a lot. It's been fun to watch. Congratulations on what you and your team have accomplished and LeanTos has accomplished. I want to thank you and LeanTos for joining us today. I want to thank our audience for listening to us. Lintas is a sponsor of this episode and just in a remarkable company. Lintas is hosting a summit on transforming hospital operations at at our upcoming annual meeting, the Becker's Hospital Review Annual Meeting on April 26th. Uh, If you're interested in attending, please reach out to events at beckershealthcare.com. 
But, but far more important, Moan, thank you for joining us. It's incredible to watch the journey that you're on and what an impact you're having on health systems and operational excellence. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. Take care.